Hello and welcome to The Thought Experiment. I'm Scott Berger, and we're here to guide you through a series of hypothetical journeys through physics, mathematics, and philosophy. So first off, as you may have heard, Andrew has indeed returned. So he'll be joining us for the rest of however long this podcast will be running. Let's hope for very long indeed. So this week, let's enter a thought experiment just at the turn of the 1800s called Olber's Paradox. Now, to explain this, we'll have to delve a little bit into the history of astronomy. We've done this once before, but it'll be good review. So back during the Greek and Roman times, and prior to that, and even a little bit during after, up until about the 1600s, the Earth was always at the center, also known as a a geocentric, geo meaning Earth-centric, obviously, uh, viewpoint of the universe. And the universe was also static as well. The, The stars were on a fixed celestial dome, kind of. Well, around the 1600s, Galileo revolutionized this by adding to astronomy with observation. I mean, obviously, the Greeks and Romans and people afterwards had been doing pretty extensive observation. Tycho Brahe himself had done ludicrous amounts of observation, but he hadn't had the tools necessary in order to view the stars in a magnified sense. That's That's how Galileo revolutionized astronomy was by turning the telescope to the skies. So in the 1680s or so, uh, Copernicus came about with his revolution, placing the sun at the center of the universe and having the Earth go around it. 1700s, more mathematical prowess, evolution of calculus and its applications to astronomy, so we have more and more of this uh, complicated arithmetic rising and more better ways to describe the motions of the planets and everything. And then in the 1800s, about Olber's time, cosmology was just about in its infancy. You wouldn't have recognized it as cosmology or really astronomy <coughs> at this point before the 1900s when all the huge observations came with Hubble and everything. But it was pretty much in a state of infancy, and questions of the static universe were tending to arrive. But what exactly is a static universe? Well, as I said, a static universe more or less doesn't move, quote-unquote. Obviously, we have the planets moving around the sun in a heliocentric viewpoint, but the stars themselves were still fixed. They didn't really go anywhere or do anything. But we knew that stars came and went. We knew that they were born, and we knew they died. So we pretty much assumed that they were created roughly in a uniform manner about the universe, and that more or less the universe was infinite. And because the stars are created from nothing and more or less infinite, they're more or less homogenous in that sort of sense. More meaning they are the stars themselves yeah. are distributed in a sort of, sort of even uh, density. Isn't that actually similar? Um, I mean, but I know this paradox no came around more. in the 1800s yeah, or yeah, whatever that year is. Um, but this view is actually sort of similar and easily held all the way up through the late 1900s as well. Um, I think I remember uh, uh, we went to a lecture by Stephen Hawking recently, and he went uh, and showed how the death of a lot of that view similar to that occurred. Uh, There was a view that uh, the universe was basically, again, evenly distributed by not only stars, but all matter. Um, People basically... uh, wanted to believe that, you know, the universe was of equal density, 
all around, even in equal density, and that it always remained at the exact same density. Um, and you know, when uh, the inflation of the universe was discovered, people tried to keep this theory by saying, well, the universe always remains at the same density, so as the universe expands, it ends up getting more matter. So matter's like created between the stars. So I'm basically wondering if this sort of if this paradox arose in the 1800s, which really doesn't lend a lot of credibility to the static universe theory, how did it manage to survive till today? Well, the thing with the the static universe theory or steady state as it was widely regarded in the 1900s was that Olbers didn't really patent this idea. He more or less just published it. That's why we, we call it Olbers Paradox and not uh, Kepler's Paradox or, or any of the other people that had thought of that prior. Lots of people had come up with various ideas and explanations as to why the universe shouldn't be homogenous, shouldn't be infinite sort of deal, but at the time their math was kind of obscure, you know, they didn't have really a whole lot of observation to deal with. Olbers at this time was just on the verge of getting enough observation and data that was previously unavailable to him and was able to publish his paradox in such a way that would open up the door to more questions to sort of debunk the steady-state universe. But even more so, considering that the, the steady-state theory survived long after this, you know, the again, the math during the 1800s, we didn't exactly have quantum mechanics, general relativity, and special relativity at that time. So, All right, so, really so what is the back paradox? It up. This was just more or less a paradox, not exactly a mathematical theory. Okay, well, the paradox is during the day, we know it's bright out. We see the sun and it's very luminous as a star and everything. So, why is the night dark? It's a pretty simple question. But if the universe was infinite and more or less homogeneous with stars, how come the sky isn't as bright as the surface of the sun? So, to expand on this, we can sort of um, imagine the Earth at a hypothetical center of some universe. Now, we're using a, a geocentric model here, which is obviously wrong, but it's, it works well with this thought experiment. So, we place the Earth at the center of we'll say, like a Russian nesting doll, kind of. And along the walls of this Russian nesting doll, and sort of like a spherical shell about it, there are stars that lie in a more or less uniform matter on the shell. You can imagine sort of a dot with Earth at the center, and then on the shell, a bunch of brighter dots that signify the stars, each one being equal distance from the other ones. So in an infinite universe, there's an infinite distance to the edge of the universe. So there should be an infinite number of these so-called star shells. Now, looking in the night sky, the line of sight from any point on the Earth, looking anywhere in the sky, should terminate on the surface of the star, if the universe is infinite. Now, what we mean by infinite is not really big, or you know, bigger than anything you can imagine. We mean infinite, and that means that anywhere you look, if the stars are obviously distributed uniformly, you should see this sort of blanket, this white haze up in the sky of just stars everywhere. So if you were to look 
and you were to see sort of a, a dark spot, we'll say. And then you keep zooming in, and keep zooming, and zooming, and zooming. Eventually, you'll see a star, and eventually, you will wind up on the surface of that star. So if the universe is more or less like that, and that every little dark spot that we see terminates in the surface of the star, the photons combined would make the night sky appear as bright as the sun, which wouldn't exactly be very appealing. So, a good analogy to this, now it's sort of hard to to visualize photonic flux here, so if you're standing in front of a forest, we'll say, now the forest is roughly uniform and distributed with trees in a more or less even manner. So if you get at an, at an angle to which, no, forget it, no, forget that. Basically to help illustrate this point, um, say you're yeah, standing in front of a row of trees, uh, which is basically at the edge of a forest, and uh, if you look into the forest, your line of sight is eventually stopped by a tree bark if the forest is uniform. I mean, anyone else has seen this, and they're standing in front of a forest. You really can't see to the other side and all the way out. You always end up seeing just another tree. Uh, so that's basically the gist of this paradox. Uh, only replace tree with sun and replace forest with the entire infinite universe. Having to do with this, going back to the Russian nesting doll model, the star shell model, the flux or flow of light from those stars and the star shells would wind up summing to infinity because we have an infinite amount of distance and even given an inverse square law of luminosity that the infinite number of stars would correspond to an infinite number of photons bouncing about the universe and correspondingly you know an infinite brightness during the night so in other words, the night would not exist and would actually be brighter yeah. Another than reason day. Uh, so we would have a actually night and it would moving be on to the rest day, of the way uh, main point of how this paradox is relevant today is that you know someone would obviously ask if they read further into this. Uh, doesn't this disprove the Big Bang? Because uh, if we were to look further through time backwards by looking deeper into space then we should see the light that's em that was emanated by the Big Bang, all those photons that were finally freed during, oh, the first few milliseconds of the Big Bang. Um, you know, all lines of sight would terminate on this and make the night day, uh, even more so than always having a star. Uh, so, what's the solution here? Well, the problem is that that would be perfectly acceptable. That would debase the Big Bang. However, we know that the universe is expanding. Now this is given by, you know, redshift and watching galaxies, you know, the, their light as the universe expands decreases and moves more towards the red end of the spectrum. So we in fact do see the face of this phenomenon that every line of sight ends with the Big Bang. However, the intensity of that light that we see has been decreased over time. So, from the beginning of the Big Bang, if we had tons and tons of gamma rays, lots of radiation moving about, even stuff more higher energy than that, so if we were to look back, we would see that if the universe wasn't expanding. However, because the universe is expanding, those gamma rays were redshifted across the spectrum down into what we know as microwaves, just you know, before radio waves. We can resolve the surface of the Big Bang, and in combination with this inflation, that decreased the wavelength of the energy of the light from the Big Bang, and we know that as the cosmic microwave background radiation. So some people would probably 
ask, but what about the interstellar dust? I mean, obviously, dust would block stars. As we look towards the center of the galaxy, we see that there's lots and lots of stars, but there's also lots and lots of dust, so it blocks a lot of the light coming from the center of the galaxy. So, why wouldn't we be able to have dust distributed out through the universe to block some of this infinite amount of light? So, this kind of butts heads with the second law of thermodynamics, and that states that there can really be no material hotter than its surroundings without giving off some sort of radiation. There can't be a uniform distribution of matter, or dust in this case, in which it absorbs more energy than it emits. In a homogeneous universe, the distribution of radiation should be homogeneous. The gas would heat up and be as light-emitting as stars would, in effect. In reality, they're not. They're cold dust that just sits around and really... So then really why doesn't this... Uh, ...expanses? It's like, second paradox of... Infinitely, an infinitely dark sky actually end up applying. If you know the second law of thermodynamics would state that there's no material hotter than its surroundings uh, without giving off some sort of radiation. Uh, if that disproves this sort of second layer of Ober's paradox, you know why wouldn't the sky be infinitely dark? Would emit no radiation whatsoever because there's dust distributed uniformly throughout the galaxy. Um, why wouldn't this be true, then, if uh, dust does, in fact, manage to block the light from stars? Well, because even in an infinite universe, say we have a, a dust cloud that's blocking some light from a distant star to the Earth, eventually, over geologic time, that dust would warm up due to the fact that radiation from that distant star is penetrating it the dust is absorbing that light, and you know, a little bit of that light is passing okay. through, but not a whole lot. So it's it's blocking, we'll say, 60% or so from that star, 60% of the light. Now, light has a lot of energy in it, especially when coming from stars, and light, you know, has a lot of different constituents of it. There's gamma rays, there's infrared, all sorts of different things. So you have a lot of energy, and it's not, not just like shining a flashlight from deep intergalactic space on some dust. It's, you know, shining the product of nuclear fusion. You know, you sit out on a beach, and you can easily feel the sun on a nice, warm, sunny day. You know, if you were to sit under a, a bank of flashlights, maybe not so much, but a tanning bed, we'll get in there. So, you have this giant nuclear furnace out in space that's sending off all this radiation into a dust cloud. That dust cloud is eventually going to get a suntan from that star, and eventually it's going to get so sunburnt that it's going to, you know, be too hot for itself, and it's going to start either giving off radiation in the form of color or what have you, or it's going to start expanding to cool off, or it's going to, you know, change its its pressure, internal temperature, or things like those. So, if imagine if you had an infinite number of those stars, and even an infinite number of this gas the gas eventually would have to heat up. It's like lying on a beach for too long. You are the gas, and you're trying to block this, the beach, or the Earth, from the sun. Now, you absorb some of the sun's radiation, then you know, it passes through you in whatever form, but you're absorbing more and more radiation. There's only so much your sunblock can handle before you become a walking lobster. 
So eventually that intergalactic dust is going to become a walking lobster. So if I stood out on the beach for a long enough period of time, we're assuming that I'm like, you know, ageless and will never die, then I would start to glow red? You first would glow red. Your your skin would become really, really red in the sun, provided you don't have sunblock. Your skin would melt, and then you would burst into flames. So Olber's paradox points towards a universe that is finite, and would have to increase volumetrically with time. Now, in a sense, he'd postulated a reason for cosmic inflation nearly a century before observation by Edwin Hubble. Now, we talked about Edwin Hubble a little bit before. He was the man that discovered that galaxies were receding away from us, showing that the universe was expanding. Now, if you run it backwards, if you run the expansion backwards, you get a smaller space. Now, if you play it from the beginning, you get this huge expansion of space that carries matter with it. It's not an explosion in space, because space itself is expanding. You can imagine sort of a, a small sheet of graph paper morphing into this bigger sheet of graph paper. That's how I like to imagine it. Um, but how Hubble confirmed Olber's theory, but it was also theories of people who had, who had postulated it well before Olber's, he just published it, that Hubble was able to confirm this through the light that he saw from distant galaxies. Now, at the time, we just thought that galaxies were little dust clouds inside of our own galaxy, so we didn't even realize at this time that other galaxies had existed. Now, the light emitted from those galaxies, like we said, in the cosmic microwave background radiation model, is redshifted during the expansion of the universe. So, as the universe expands, light, we'll say in a gamma ray fashion, travels through space, you know, it's super boring, it's just the same landscape for hundreds of millions of billions of miles, and then you get to Earth, during that time, the distance had been increasing. So, although you were able to outrun this distance increase, because of the fact that you were running on this sort of treadmill that was getting longer as you were running on it, because of that, you were expending more energy, and therefore reducing your energy down into a lower state, from gamma from gamma waves down to uh, microwaves. Or, in this case, we see the light from uh, galaxies shifted more towards the red. And another way you can picture this is if you have a, a loaf of raisin bread, as astronomers like to use, you have a loaf of raisin bread, the raisins, galaxies, and as you put the loaf in the cosmic universe, Makes sense. it expands, and all the raisins are moving away from each other. This paradox kind of brings us into a, a final expansion of it that I don't really think Olbers had in mind to expand on, was that this sort of parallels with string theory, well, in a way. I, most so, important Andrew, what, thing what, that I could possibly exactly tell, tell you, you about string theory? is at the moment it has no way to be testable. Uh, it is string theory. It is entirely that. It's all theory. There is no experimental data whatsoever. It makes a bunch of predictions, none of which... Ooh, excuse me. None of which have been perf- uh, confirmed yet. It makes a bunch of it makes a bunch of postdictions, which uh, some of them have been confirmed. A lot of them certainly help to explain uh, a lot of what we see around the universe. The most important one is, of course, the wedding between quantum mechanics and general relativity. Um, but in gen- extremely general terms, I'm not going to get into the specifics because that would take a long time. Uh, string theory is basically uh, a theory that is supposed to be a theory of everything. It's supposed to make sense of all the things that science cannot currently make sense of. And 
uh, it's also, unfortunately, completely untestable, which hopefully will change once we get the Large Hedron Collider working. Uh, but until then, uh, string theory is basically a dead theory because it has absolutely no way to be confirmed. Now, the interesting thing between the parallels of Olbers and Hubble's discovery was that Olbers was able to make a prediction just based on you know, a hypothetical analysis. Though he didn't really have a mathematical model in place, other people had, but you know the mathematics were rudimentary at the time, he was able to predict inflationary cosmology, not in the sense that we know it really today, but the overall underlying basis of it almost a century before it was able to be observed. Now, this parallels with string theory in a sense where, well, how far ahead is theory ahead of you know, testability and observation? And right now we really can't say that we really know. I mean, theory could, for all we know, be 500, 1,000 years ahead of observation. Some of the stuff that I've looked into in order to probe at the scales needed you know, to search for cosmic strings... You know, of which string theory is, is based upon, we would need a particle accelerator about the radius of the solar system in order to run. Now, that is beyond imagining in terms of size. So that's obviously way out of the ballpark in terms of predictability or feasibility at this moment. But whether or not if, if string theory is actually true, and whether or not if the theory itself if mathematics and our able our ability to reason is so far ahead of our ability so basically to you're saying you know, whether or not if we've actually because Olber was able to come up with uh, an extremely valid and actually predict uh, a form of inflationary cosmology before any evidence was discovered perhaps string theories do the same thing and it really is uh, the grand unifying theory after all even though no evidence has been discovered quite yet well, it'd be kind of a, a leap in logic, but es essentially, like, you know, you, you have a lot of theories that come out before observation, like Einstein's general theory of relativity, for example. That came out before it was ever observed to be a factual theory. You know, they, he was sitting around during a total solar eclipse, and... Well, after his, you know, he had published his theory, they sat around during this total solar eclipse, and they were able to see stars from behind the sun bent by the sun's gravity around. So we were able to see them you know, behind the sun, sort of, proving his theory that he had formulated you know, years prior. Now, to say that, you know, oh, just because Olbers was right in terms of inflationary universe, mm -hmm. therefore string theory, it was kind of a you know logical fallacy. It's kind of like a jump, a slippery slope, if you will. But I'm I'm sort of suggesting that if theory is well ahead of observation, and now if we take that at face value and we accept that as true, yeah, like CTP then energy, that opens up the door to string theory, but it also opens up the door to so much more. For the for those who don't know, CTP energy, you can. We won't give away the surprise, but you can Google search it and have a laugh for yourself if you're skeptically minded. And we will be covering that sort of material not next week, but the week after. Next week we'll be having a, a special guest on the show 
provided uh, we, we can get a recording. Uh, until out. then, so I'm Andrew Smith-Morland. That's our show for this week, and we hope to see you next really? week. Really? We don't do that anymore? <laughs>